it seems fitting then to ask the question as we move into our time in God's Word this morning, what is the condition of your heart this morning? What is the condition of your heart this morning? Of course, I don't mean physically, right? It's not what we're talking about, I'm sure. Many of your hearts are beating and they're, they're well, they're functioning well. However, you still might have a troubled heart. And if your heart is troubled, well, you're not alone. In fact, our world is experiencing what you might call an epidemic of heart trouble. Anxiety, fear, and worry have become widespread. It's not hard to find data that supports this in the wake of the COVID pandemic. There have been numerous studies, a number of studies that have been on anxiety, and in just about every case, the data suggests a sharp increase in anxiety, fear, and worry. And what is actually most troubling about this data is that young adults uh, appear to suffer the most. According to a 2020 study in the Journal of Psychiatric Research, Dr. Renee Goodwin and others discovered that anxiety in young adults, those 18 years old and younger, doubled from 2008 to 2018. But of course, you know this to be true. Unless you're living in a cave, you don't need a psychiatrist to tell you that people are struggling with heart trouble. You know it because you see it in your friends. You see it in your neighbors. You see it in your coworkers. You see it in your spouse and in your kids and in your grandkids. Of course, emotions such as anxiety, fear, and worry aren't new. These emotions have been around since Adam and Eve were removed from the Garden of Eden. That being said, the data and our own experience seem to suggest, again, that we, be in a, we are in a kind, of, uh, a kind of epidemic of heart trouble. It's one thing to talk about anxiety, fear, and worry. Uh, one thing to talk about these, these issues um, in terms of the way people feel in the world, talk about other people. It's something else entirely, though, to talk about anxiety, fear, and worry that exists in our own hearts. And this morning, I'd like us to consider just that. As Christians and followers of Christ, we're not above heart trouble. Many of us have even found ourselves in the middle of the outbreak. I would even confess to you that as your pastor, I struggle with heart trouble. I have weeks where, for whatever reason, the storm clouds are lingering and I just can't seem to break free. So again, I ask you, what is the condition of your heart this morning? If you're like me, and apparently most people, you're experiencing the rising presence of anxiety, fear, and worry on some level in your life. John Calvin said, quote, it is impossible for us to avoid feeling various emotions. What he means by that is it's impossible for us to avoid feeling anxious and fearful. He continues, but though we are shaken, we must not fall down. Thus it is said of believers that they are not troubled because relying on the word of God, though very great difficulties press hard upon them, still they remain steadfast and upright. How can we, as Calvin said, remain steadfast and upright? 
when very great difficulties press upon us. I'm not sure if you have your Bible open, but if you would, you could turn to the Gospel of John, chapter 14. We're going to look at three verses this morning, John 14, verses 1 through 3. In this passage, Jesus will give us the treatment plan for our troubled hearts. Again, John chapter 14, verses 1 through 3. Hear the word of the Lord. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that or so that, where I am, you may be also. The big idea this morning is this. Jesus gives us a treatment plan for our troubled hearts in three remedies. A treatment plan for our troubled hearts in three remedies. Now, there is a paragraph pause here between chapters 13 and 14. These two chapters, however, are closely connected. In fact, we have to understand what has just happened in chapter 13 in order to feel the weight of Jesus' words in chapter 14. At the end of chapter 13, Jesus made a prophecy, you remember, that Peter would deny him. There's no doubt these words would have stunned Peter, and there's no doubt that they would have had an effect on the other disciples listening to Jesus. They might have questioned if Peter would deny Christ, is there some great tragedy that lies ahead for the group? Furthermore, Jesus has already spoken about a betrayer. One of them is a defector. And while Judas left the room, now Jesus forecasts that Peter will deny Christ. We shouldn't forget, of course, what Jesus said up in chapter 13, verse 33, that he'll be leaving, saying, where I am going, you cannot come. So, do you think the disciples had anything to worry about? Seems they had a lot to worry about. The words of 14.4 reveal that the disciples, the disciples' response to all this wasn't confusion and it wasn't resistance. It appears that it was anxiety. They were worried, or as Jesus says here, they were troubled. They were troubled. Now, John has used this word before. We've come across it a number of times, this word troubled. In John's gospel, I told you previously that the word carries the idea of stirring, of stirring. For example, in John chapter 5 and verse 7, it describes, John uses it to, to, to describe the stirring of water in a pool. In the same way the pool of water was stirred, the hearts of the disciples were being stirred. Like the ingredients in a mixing bowl, uncertainty, worry, fear, they're stirring around inside the hearts of the disciples. If you start with the main ingredient, namely that Jesus will be leaving, then you add a little betrayal and just a pinch of denial, well, you're left with a recipe for anxiety. I know you're familiar with the phrase, when it rains, it pours. You know that phrase. That's how we communicate the idea that difficult things in our lives, they tend to arrive at our doorstep all at once. They come at rapid succession. Something like this happened in the life of Job, maybe you recall, the Bible records that on a single day, 
In a 24-hour period, Job lost all of his servants, all of his possessions, and his family, his sons and daughters. His family and his livelihood were taken from him in the span of a single day. And while you may not have lost your family or your livelihood on a single day, I'm sure you've been through seasons of life that have caused you to employ the proverb, when it rains, it pours. What then is the remedy for the anxiety that such a season might produce? How do you calm a troubled heart? I told you this morning, Jesus gives us a treatment plan for our troubled hearts. Three remedies. The first remedy is this. Believe in God and in Christ. Believe in God and in Christ. Jesus says it right there in the second half of verse one. Believe in God and believe also in me. These, these words from Jesus are more than advice. They are a command. He's giving us a command. He's commanding those with troubled hearts to believe. The first fix, therefore, is faith. It's fair to say the antidote, the antidote for the virus of anxiety is trust. Believe in God. Believe also in me. Now, interestingly, why, why does Jesus say, believe in God and believe also in me? That is, why does he separate belief in God from belief in himself? Whatever we determine the reason is, there's certain, these words certainly support a very high Christology. That is, they teach a very high view of Christ. If Jesus equates belief in God with believing in himself, then it follows Jesus is God. Although Jesus doesn't explain why he separates or marks off belief in God and belief in himself in verse 1, I believe he does, he does so, he does this to stress the mission of God through Christ, through himself. In this way, Jesus is saying it's not enough to believe in God and God alone. That's one thing. But we must also believe that God sent Jesus on mission from God. To be clear, Jesus isn't laying out for us a choice. That's not what is here. It's not a choice. Believe in God or believe in Jesus. That's not what Jesus is doing. Jesus is commanding us, believe in God, believe also in me. That is, believe in my mission, my work as God. And that mission, of course, is what Jesus just spoke about in the end of chapter 13. Jesus will be leaving, and where he is going, the disciples cannot follow. No one can follow. We cannot follow because the mission of Jesus was what? The cross. This was his mission. In other words, to believe in God and not to believe in the person and work of Jesus is to believe in something or to agree with something that is not Christianity. Another important question this, these words bring to our mind is related to the nature of belief. The nature of belief. After all, isn't Jesus speaking to a group of people who have already expressed belief? Aren't they believers? If the apostles have already believed, then what exactly is Jesus commanding them to do? 
Well, in order to draw out the answer to that question, let me ask you a question. In times of anxiety, in times of stress, are you tempted to doubt whether or not God can be trusted? Yeah. Or another angle. When things are going great and you have a litany of things to be thankful for, do you question if God really cares for you? No, you don't. So then we have the answer to the question. Why does Jesus call believers to believe when they encounter heart trouble? The answer is because these are the times in which we doubt whether or not God can be trusted. Calvin wrote that when we fail to trust God, it's as if, quote, the naked majesty of God, the the uncovered majesty of God is at too great a distance from us. And he continues, but also because Satan interposes clouds of every description to hinder us from contemplating God. The consequence is that our faith vanishes away. And even the flesh of its own accord suggests a thousand imaginations to turn away our eyes from beholding God in a proper nature or a proper manner, end quote. So you see, it's when the heart begins to take on water that we must be reminded that it's God who controls the seas. In these moments, belief is the anchor that holds us fast. By calling the disciples and the believers, us, to believe, Jesus isn't questioning our belief. He's saying, you have believed in me, now keep believing in me. Keep trusting, keep relying on me. In this way, belief is what starts and sustains the Christian. We never stop believing. We, We look back on the moment of belief, yes, but we don't merely look back at the moment of belief. The Christian must also stand moment by moment in his belief. Belief is what props us up. It's what carries us forward. Belief is how God calms our troubled hearts. Therefore, belief in God and belief in Christ is the first remedy of Jesus' treatment plan to cure our troubled hearts. Christian, believe. Keep believing. Second remedy is found in verse 2. Jesus says, in my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? Second remedy then in Jesus' treatment plan to cure our troubled hearts is this. Believe that God is working for you. Believe that God is working for you. Clearly, this figure of speech, my Father's house, is a way of speaking about heaven. Jesus says, in heaven there are many rooms And these rooms are for the disciples or the believers. Jesus says, if it were not so, I would have told you. This word translated here as rooms in our translation, in the ESV translation, is probably better translated as dwelling places. If you have a NASB or some of the other translations, you read that in the text, dwelling places. 
You're probably familiar with the old King James translation. In my father's house are many what? Mansions, right? That's a very familiar uh, translation. We hear that all the time. When we hear it this way, we, we picture heaven like some neighborhood, at least I do, some neighborhood full of big houses. That's how we envision heaven will be. I, I see the movie Home Alone. See these you know, big houses in this neighborhood. Of course, this is a flawed picture of heaven. Heaven certainly won't be modeled after some wealthy American suburbia. For what it's worth, the translation mansions in this verse comes over, comes over from the Latin Vulgate. When Jerome translated the Bible into Latin and he used the word mansions, it didn't mean what it means today. The word simply meant lodging places. And so he meant to communicate that idea of really the same as our translations today, dwelling places is what a mansion was in the fourth century. To us, it's not. It's something different. Obviously, that translation, mansions, is misleading in our day. I suppose then I'm sorry to break your heart. <laughs> there is no mansion, <laughs> at least some home alone American suburban mansion for you in heaven. That being said, there is a place for you, and whatever that place is, I promise you, it will be just fine. So Jesus isn't promising us a mansion, and neither is, he, neither is he promising us that there are stages in heaven. This is another kind of perspective on this verse. Some have taken the idea of rooms and suggested that we move from room to room in heaven, and that heaven involves a kind of series of stages which we advance through until, well, we become perfect. Some cults have a kind of view like this of heaven. I don't know whether or not that's true. I just know the Bible doesn't teach that. The Bible nowhere teaches that we advance in through heaven through some stages or that the intent of this verse here is that we would go from room to room. That's not the idea of this text. What Jesus is saying here is simply that the believer has a place in heaven. That's the point. And the point is not really about how lavish it might be, the point is simply that provision has been made for us. And there's enough space for each and every one of us in the Father's house. And so the point is simple and it's very helpful. When a son heads back to his father's house, when a son heads back to his father's home, he returns home. Jesus, therefore, is going home, and his home is our home. Furthermore, heaven is a real place. It's not some concept in a science fiction movie. In his book, Mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis argues for the existence of heaven using our desires, using logic that only Lewis can use. I love his logic. It's so fascinating. Listen to this. He writes, Creatures are not born with desires unless satisfaction for those desires exists. A baby feels hunger. Well, there is such a thing as food. A duckling wants to swim. Well, there is such a thing as water. Building on this logic, he writes, quote, If I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, 
Well, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. If none of my earthly pleasures satisfy it, that does not prove that the universe is a fraud. On the contrary, he says, probably earthly pleasures were never meant to satisfy it, but only to arouse it, to suggest the real thing. End quote. In other words, God has planted within us a desire, a longing for something more. And as Lewis sees the world, and I think he sees it from the right perspective, the fact that I have such a desire doesn't mean that the world nor that I are broken or that, as he says, it's a fraud. Rather, the ache I feel for future ease is designed to teach me that I've not been created for this world. I've been created for another world. And our itch for heaven cannot be satisfied by trying to make our home here. Whether you build it with vacations or retirement or health, wine, women, and song, or the unholy trinity of sex, drugs, and rock and roll. Our itch for heaven can only be satisfied with the scratch of Christ. Amen? This is what the world needs to hear. Hear the antidote for the troubled heart. Believe in God. Believe in Christ. Believe that God is working for you. As the death of Christ became, as a question, as the death of Christ became a reality in the disciples' lives, do you think they felt abandoned? The fact that Jesus seems so far at times, does it make you feel abandoned? Friends, the promise of heaven is your protection against the feeling of abandonment. The promise of heaven is the antidote for a troubled heart. We must believe that God is working for us. That being said, it's not that Jesus had some overalls on and he was, you know, the son of a carpenter, so he's up there building a house. (laughs) That's not quite right. That's not what Jesus means when he says, I go to prepare a place for you. I don't know, maybe you thought he was actually physically building a house up there. That's not what he means. Jesus isn't preparing the place with hammer and nails. He's preparing it with a cross and a grave. Listen carefully. Our dwelling place is already there. What Jesus must do is take possession of our dwelling place for us through his death. And having purchased our dwelling place, we have permission then to access that place through him. To state it another way, it's in returning to the Father that the pathway to the rooms is being set forth. And it's in his arrival that those rooms will be prepared completely for us. (laughs) 
with this remedy, we must remind ourselves again what has caused the heart trouble. What is weighing on the disciples' hearts is the prospective loss of fellowship with Jesus. Can you imagine a better friend or a better companion than Jesus? Can you imagine anyone better? Being a friend of Jesus meant, fi- meant finding the wisest friend. I mean, Tom Stout was wise, is wise, right? We said that. Could you imagine getting advice from Jesus? Help me, Jesus. I got a problem with a buddy. Could you imagine what he would say? I can't. I know it would be life-changing. Being a friend of Jesus meant more than finding an understanding companion. Being a friend of Jesus meant being friends with perfection in every imaginable way or unimaginable way. These words of comfort from Jesus, I go to prepare a place, are meant to give us what one author calls an eternal vantage point or as I would say, to help us live today in light of eternity. Our world is constantly trying to draw our hearts down toward the horizon of the present. Go to college, choose a career, save your money, plan for retirement soon. We spend so much time and energy building our rooms here, it's no wonder our hearts are troubled. Jesus taught, do not lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. Excuse me, do not lay up for yourself treasures on earth. I'm getting ahead of myself. You should do that other thing. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in. They steal it, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroy, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So how do you calm a troubled heart? Believe in God. Believe in Christ. Believe that God is at work for you. Your true home has already been built in heaven. The more you can embrace this eternal vantage point, the more the things, of this earth, the things of this earth will grow strangely dim and the more your heart will be strengthened in the light of his glory and grace. Jesus gives us a treatment plan for our troubled hearts in three remedies. Remedy number one, believe in God and believe in Christ. Remedy two, believe that God is at work for you. And re- remedy number three, believe that God will return. Believe that God will return. Look down at verse three. And if I go, Jesus says, and prepare a place for you, I will come again, and I will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. Obviously, here the focus is on the words, I will come again and take you to myself. Although Jesus plans to leave, he also plans to return. If you look at the greater context of this passage, we realize Jesus is speaking here of an interim period, interim period, in which he will not be physically present. Again, Jesus began his speech up in chapter 13 and verse 33, saying, little children, yet a little while I am with you, you will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now I 
also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. He's going to leave. Then here in chapter 14, verse 3, he says, and if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again, and I will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. In putting these verses together, we can discern that Jesus predicts a period of time in which he will not be bodily present. Of course, that fits perfectly with our experiences because Jesus isn't here bodily. And yet, as we'll see in the coming weeks, John chapter 14, while Jesus not be, might not be with us bodily, he has given us the Holy Spirit that dwells within us. It's in this context of leaving that Jesus teaches maybe the, the largest teaching on the Holy Spirit is in these chapters. We'll see that in the coming weeks. Well, it's true that other biblical authors, when writing about the, this time period, they kind of bring in the uh, apocalyptic elements of the second coming. Neither Jesus nor John focus on the details here, those kind of details. The focus here in thinking about the second coming, or excuse me, Jesus leaving, well, this is the second coming here, the focus is on the simple truth that Jesus plans to return. That's all he wants to encourage us with, that he will return. I suppose it's true that when our hearts are troubled, we don't need to concern ourselves with the finer points. In the moment of trouble, we need to keep things simple. It doesn't get any simpler than this. Jesus will come again and take us where he is and we'll be with him. That's how simple it is in these verses. The bridegroom will come back to meet the bride and bring her to the home that has been prepared for her. And the focus in these verses is on the comfort that we'll enjoy in the presence of God. It's enough to know that we'll be with the Lord. Jesus said, where I am, you will be also. For the Christian, heaven is where Jesus is. For all our speculating about what heaven will be like, it's enough to know that we'll be with Jesus forever. When you love anyone with your whole heart, life seems to, be, life seems to only begin when you are with that person. Isn't that true? Gandhi landed on it when he said, where there is love, there is life. Even an unbeliever can land on that truth. F. Scott Fitzgerald famously wrote to his wife, I love her and it is the beginning of everything. How true it is that love is the beginning of everything. That we only feel alive in the company of those we love. Friends, so it is with Christ. Yet in this world and in the interim, we can only see Christ through a mirror dimly. We just read it this morning. Jerry read it to us. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 12. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. In these days, our contact with Christ is marred. The world and the flesh and the devil distort the image. For all that is true about heaven, the best definition of heaven is the place, the state, 
where we will always be with Jesus. That's the best thing about heaven. It's where we will experience his companionship and his love. And where nothing will separate us from him. Here then is Jesus' treatment plan for the troubled heart. Fairly simple. Believe in God, he says. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. I ask you again, are you struggling with a troubled heart? This morning. Well, if you are, believe in God. Believe in Christ. Believe that God is at work for you. Believe that God will return. Amen.